and your Amsasia podcast. Yo, pick your red up because things ain't that bad. Maybe you should switch the target that you're aiming at. Believe perfection is a beast that they'll never catch. So never waste another day because life moves so fast. And a dream without pursuing, yo, they never last. Another shadow of regret I try to never cast. And always tell a truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining. Welcome to episode 27 of the Endurance Asia podcast. I'm your host, Scott Pugh. And this week we are joined by Mayank Vaid, one of the in my eyes, most impressive guest we've had on so far. He recently uh, conceived of and uh, and took part in um, a challenge that he coined Everest Man, and he uh, completed it just um, just a few weeks ago, three or so weeks ago, whilst uh, whilst us all under quarantine and a phenomenal feat of endurance. Um, it's uh, effectively a, a triathlon uh, style Everesting challenge whereby he swam 8,848 metres almost nine kilometres followed by an Everesting on a bike so that's a, a cumulative elevation of uh, of Everest and followed by an Everesting on foot just a uh, just an absolute crazy crazy feat of endurance so we do get into that but we also talk about his world record achievement of doing the the arc to arch, which is uh, a similar um, triathlon style challenge, uh, going from the uh, the uh, Marble Arch in London and uh, running all the way to to Calais, crossing the uh, the the Channel by swim followed by a, a bike ride to, to the Arc de Triomphe. And just his story about taking on this challenge over the last two years is just mind-blowing. I wasn't quite aware of the, of the scale of this. And to, to be a, um, a world record holder in this, uh, in this iconic challenge as well. So, so good to have him on. He's an Indian national based in Hong Kong and um and doing some crazy stuff with some uh, some more crazy plans in the works so uh with that let's start with mayank vaid mayank welcome to the endurance tasia podcast thank you scott nice to meet you nice to meet everybody it's great to have you on mate we uh i was alerted to you and to the uh, challenge you were coming up recently when um when i got an invite from from martin kai to um the guy that runs uh quite a few races in in, in hong kong including the green race and sent me an invite to uh to an event called or to a site and a page called everest everest man which immediately piqued my interest as um we've covered on the endurance asia podcast quite a few uh quite a few everesting challenges and we had Alan Grant on that's done quite a few Everest things on a bike around Singapore. And, uh, and then I started to look into it and, um, and it's an absolutely crazy challenge. And so we'll, we'll get into that. But I mean, firstly, I just want to hear a bit about your, uh, your background. Where, where are you from? You're obviously based in Hong Kong, but just to, just to get like a bit of a backstory on you, Mike. Yeah, I'm, I'm Indian. I grew up in India. Uh, I studied in India. I'm a lawyer by profession. I'm, a, I'm now a solicitor in Hong Kong. Uh, my wife is Hong Kong Chinese. I have two boys, uh, five and nine. 
uh, we're expecting our third boy, maybe a girl. We don't know yet, uh, but that's coming up in November this year. And uh, my wife's my wife's based in Hong Kong. I mean, she's Hong Kong Chinese, and uh, she's uh, we we met uh, when I was working in Beijing. I moved to Hong Kong because uh, we wanted to get together. So, and then I uh, registered as a lawyer, a solicitor in Hong Kong. I practice in Hong Kong, but um, I work for in-house for a French uh, retail group. And uh, yeah, um, I, I love I love uh, workouts. I love it, triathlons. Uh, I really enjoy open water swims, um, and I just love the whole vibe of Hong Kong to be able to explore um, uh, swimming, cycling, running, and there's such a great community here. So that's. That's really my background. My father was in the army, so we we traveled yeah, around a lot. Yeah, I was going to say you're like as an as a as a child of a an army servant, you 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 end up moving around a lot, right? So where did you spend most of your time growing up? I I spent a lot of time. Like I spent, I changed about thirteen schools in twelve years. So twelve years of schooling and thirteen thirteen schools. So my dad was a part of the special ops commando group, and he was moving. Uh, almost every year, so he never left us alone, and we lived in trunks and tents and in the desert and in the mountains. So we we moved around a lot, and I went skiing with my father. We went skiing in Kashmir, border border points to border points. We we I rode camels with him. So we did a lot of extreme stuff that we would think of uh, as a child with my father. And swimming in lakes with crocodiles, I learned to run, to ride horses at the age of three. So it was a very exciting, very celebrated childhood that I had with my with my father and my mother. Yeah, and your dad being in special ops, I guess he was a pretty fit guy as well. Then, oh, he was super fit. So um, he fought uh, fought the wars uh, in 1965, 62, 71. He was basically a runner. Um, they were not supposed to communicate on on radios and wireless because it will be intercepted by the enemy. His job was to not communicate um, on the on the radio, but his job was to run 150 miles or 200 miles and carry the message that the enemy has moved uh, six kilometers. So for that, he would run 150 miles and then he would run back. There was a that was an amazing amazing story that he had. He would go and do some amazing stuff behind the enemy lines. Um, so a g- very celebrated officer with a great uh, experience. So I think uh, we observed that's, him. That's and, like a crazy and, story. Sorry to interject there, but I was, um, I just um, finished reading uh, the book Spartathlon about the, yeah, Pedipides, the guy that sort of runs, uh, the, the Greek guy that runs to notify the Spartans to come and, uh, and ward off the Persians or like, or to let know the Persian invasion. Um, have you heard of that race at all? Spartathlon, mm-hmm. which is, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it almost, uh, yeah, they're called Harak. I forget the name of the, the guys that, um, that do these long runs, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating that, um, that your, uh, that your father used to do that within the army. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, that's what, um, got him, um, excited about what he did because he started to do these long runs and eventually he became a, a like a trainer at the age of 40 he was running with 18 and 19 year olds and they would run 
in 45 degrees, 50 degrees Celsius heat for double marathon without water. And that would be training the, the special ops guys in the Indian military, in the Indian uh, army and uh, the special forces. So uh, he, for some reason, he really enjoyed that. He, he just loved it. And we grew up, so I grew up on uh, learning how to deal with assault weapons at the age of six and seven and eight. I knew how to assemble and disassemble a, um, an M16 uh, because we would go to a, a firing range and we would fire guns. We would fire automatic guns and machine guns because after school, we didn't have anything to do. So the school bus would drop us off very close to the, the, the assault course and we would go there and we experienced a lot of good stuff, a lot of exciting things, learning from the commandos. And I think somewhere... Um, uh, we learned a lot about uh, dealing with extreme, dealing with ambiguity, dealing with uh, survival skills. And I think uh, that's the best thing that I had as, as a child to learn from my, from my childhood, from my parents. That's amazing. Cause I was, um, I was looking at your kind of resume of the races that you've done. And, um, and I, we obviously showed the most recent ones from like 2018. So I was sort of wondering, you know, have, is this something you've been like, involved in for a long time in terms of endurance sports uh, but obviously no. you had like a growing up you had a, a, a big exposure to outdoors and to doing um, lots of running with your father and everything but was there a big gap from that growing up period to um, to the races that you've been doing in more recent years there was there is there was a big gap because it's it's part of the Indian culture uh, Indian culture doesn't respect sports Indian culture uh, unless doesn't trade, yeah. Unless it's cricket or it's it's Bollywood or it's a politician, uh, Indian Indian culture doesn't really respect anything except uh, uh, engineers and doctors and uh, cricket and Bollywood superstars. But um, there was a big gap because at some point in time that reality uh, set into the family and the family said, "Well, you're not heading anywhere. You've got to." focus on becoming um, either a, a civil servant or, or becoming a lawyer or becoming a, an engineer. And there was uh, a gap. That is that like Indian culture doesn't, um, my, my wife's half Indian. And, um, uh, but yeah, what, why is it that, it, that sport outside of cricket isn't, uh, I mean, you know, like when you consider the Olympics, like India is never in the sort of like a, the top 10 countries within Olympic sports and, yeah, what is, what is it around the society that that um, that favors study and academic achievement over um, over physical? I think it's just the the economics behind it. So there's so much of money behind cricket. It used to be India. India used to be great in hockey, and India used to be great in uh, athletics like track running with PT Usha, and we had a India had a great uh, hockey team, uh, but it just evaporated because uh, everybody started to focus on um, cricket and it's great to see that there are new sports like there are new athletes younger athletes coming around right now around athletics around tennis around badminton but it's never been accepted that sports can lead to a successful career sports does not in Indian culture does not lead to a happy life that's what Indians think about because uh, you're not recognized. It doesn't pay for your 
family, it doesn't pay for your, unless you're a cricket player. It's unfortunate. And that's the reason why India, despite having such a great uh, coastline, uh, beautiful roads, uh, a huge history and culture of riding bikes, because we all ride bikes to work. We ride bikes to school. We ride bikes every day. Uh, but we still don't have great bikers compared to Italy or France or Belgium or Germany or Australia. And we don't have that. Uh, and we run. We, I, I go to my hometown, my province in up in the hills in Himachal. The kids who are running to school every day, uh, they're running trails. Uh, they're running more than 25, 30 kilometers just to get to school every day. But there's no acceptance of the fact that they could be great trail runners I think that's simply because nobody believes that sport can lead to a happy life and a successful recognized uh, career. Uh, it's a pity. It is a shame. And it's almost counterintuitive because, I mean, we know obviously that having that sport just feeds into having a healthy lifestyle, longevity and uh, an overall well-being and, uh, and definitely missing out. And I think what it needs is to have Know, the equivalent of like Bollywood stars as like as a as a, as a trail running star or an endurance athlete or, or someone to get in the Tour de France or something just to just to change that perception right um, and and so when when did you start getting back into endurance sports then after obviously you sort of went down the study route, route for, for quite a while and I'm sure that was a big part of your focus for many years when did you start coming back to endurance sports? So I was in Beijing and a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, he took me out for a big run on the the the, the wall, uh, uh, the Beijing, uh, close to Beijing. We went for a long run and I really enjoyed it. And that was it. It sort of ended there. There was this one day I suffered a lot until I moved to Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, I met some great great people and where I live right now is just uh, there's, a, there's swarms of people who are trying to stay fit there's swarms of people who are trying to uh, be competitive and there's a lot of trail running lots of open water there's a lot of uh, swimming races um, and a lot of bike riders so I met a great friend of mine uh, in my neighborhood and he really encouraged me to um, come and uh, join a marathon in Pyongyang in North Korea so we went and did that and I really enjoyed it so on our way back, uh, he asked me if I was keen to do the Arch to Arc uh, triathlon. And that time I was not a swimmer. So I didn't know how to swim. I was swimming more than three minutes, 100 meters. Um, it didn't make any sense for me to uh, think about swimming because every time I entered the water, I, I didn't seem to move at all. So Arch to Arc meant swimming the English Channel and it didn't, didn't make any sense. But it did set a spark because I thought that a great runner, a good friend thinks I can do it. There must be a reason. Uh, and that's what got me really interested into uh, these sports. And Hong Kong is a great place. That friend? David Getting. He's David, David Getting. Getting. Yeah, David Getting uh, had that year completed the uh, seven marathons in uh, seven continents in seven days, and he won the championship. I think it was 2014 or 2015 and he was in the newspapers and we drop our kids off at the same bus stop. So I walked up to him and I said, Hey David, this is awesome. You don't know me, but I know you because I read about you in the newspapers and this is just simply awesome stuff. I'm so proud of you. And uh, he said he just came back yesterday, right? And he was walking up the hill and it didn't, didn't look like he had suffered at all. So I got really interested in what he had achieved. And 
he told me a very simple thing and he said, Mayank, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And that sort of clicked because he had really dropped himself from that beautiful top world athlete to my level to say, if David can do it, Mayank can do it too. And uh, that's, that was it. And he said, you know what, I'm going to Pyongyang, come with me and we'll do a marathon over there. And uh, it was awesome. So we still trained together. We raced together. The 2018 Arch to Arc we did together as a relay team. And uh, yeah, it's just been amazing. Um, what did he see in you then? Uh, I, think, I, think, I think he just saw an excitement, a spark in the eye. He thought um, I was crazy enough like him, you know, and, and that's what... That's that's what uh, that's what athletes look for, right? We look for we look for companionship at that that time when we are going through that pain, uh, when we are experiencing that pain. And the question is, the person who's next to you, is that person going to define that as pain, or is that person going to define it as as happiness? And a lot of endurance athletes are looking for a companion that's going to define it as happiness, as as you know, as crossing the threshold. And I think he probably saw um, a similar streak of happiness in me when I was going to go through that pain uh, because I was so excited about what he had achieved because it came from my heart, right? Triple seven, championship, you go win it. There's got to be something in that person. And uh, I think he saw that, that, that excitement in me that I wanted to, to imbibe that. I wanted to do that. And that helped me as well because... He believed in me and he said, well, if, if I can do it, my you can do it too. And uh, we've, we've done a lot of crazy stuff since, since then. What made you go for So I, I've not actually heard about the Arch to Arc, but it's, it's across the, um, the English Channel. Well, yeah, whereabouts is, do you do the crossing from? Because obviously that's a pretty busy shipping lane, isn't it? But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like a normal uh, crossing the channel. So it's, it's unlike a typical triathlon where it's a swim, bike, run, but this is a run, swim, bike. So... You start to run from London, Marble Arch, around 140 yes. kilometers to Dover, uh, which is like an ultra run. And then you jump into the channel, swim the channel, which is uh, can be between 35 to 45 to 50 kilometers. And then uh, from Calais, swim, uh, bike to uh, Arc de Triomphe. So that's why it's called Arch to Arc. And uh, uh, it's... It's, it's a great, it's a great, great race because it really tests the athlete from going into an, from an ultra run to um, swimming the English Channel. And swimming the English Channel is, is, a, is a summit in itself, right? So having that in the middle of a, of a run in a bike is, is, is beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's so good. And you actually, you, you did it the first year in 2018. You did it as a relay. So did he do the run? You did, you did the swim part? No, we, we did a tag. We did a, a tandem relay. So um, we ran the whole thing together and uh, we tag relayed the swim and then we did a tandem bike. So the run and the bike was done together. We, we, we did the whole distance, but we... Uh, tag relay. So every hour we would tag each other, jump off the boat. I would get on the boat. He would jump off. He would swim an hour. Then I would. So we did that for um, 12 hours something. So six hours each of swimming. And uh, 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 so it was a tag relay uh, event in 2018. 
And are they always, is that, do you normally do it solo? Because you went back in tw- and did it in 2019 as well, right? Did you do it solo the second time round? So 2019, 2018, uh, when we finished the race, um, so my wife was uh, crewing for me and David's wife, Trilby, was crewing for him. The four of us were together. We finished the race in Paris. We, 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 we checked into the hotel after finishing the race and we were like, super excited. Next morning I woke up and I went for a long run with my wife. And uh, when I was running and we were right under the, um, you know, the, the Arc de Triomphe, uh, I asked my wife, I don't feel the effort, right? Because we've just been putting in a lot of effort for the past three days. We, we ran 140 kilometers. We swam the English Channel and we biked all the way on a, on a massive tandem bike all the way from Calais to Paris. But I don't feel the effort. What do you think? And she looked at me and Teresa, she said to me, you know, maybe you should think about doing it as a, as a solo. Um, it's worth it. So I got really interested. And I, I asked David, David, what do you think uh, in terms of uh, doing it solo? Because I don't know if I can do it. And David was very, very straightforward to me. And he said, he was very honest. And I still remember his words. It was that Mayank, if I know one person who has the character and the personality and the honesty to do it, it's you. You should go for it because we both had such a beautiful time, right? And he's, he observed me and he, those words sent such a sense of confidence in me that I wanted to do it in 2019. So yes, I did it in 2019 as a solo and uh, it was great. It went really well. It went really well is a bit of an understatement, right? Um, I'm looking here that said, am I right in thinking that you did it like a new men's world record? Yes, yes, it was. It was a new, new, new record for uh, men's uh, overall record in the past 19 years, yeah, to 18 years, yeah. That is mental, and so in around 50 hours or so, right? So, what had been the previous uh, previous world record? So the previous record was held by a Frenchman with about 59 hours, something. Uh, And the whole game plan was to go sub 60. Uh, But a few days before my attempt, a Belgian triathlete, an amazing triathlete, he just smashed it. He he went 52.30 and 52 hours and 30 minutes. And Teresa and I, we were waiting in Dover for our, 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 let's say, our start right. And we looked at each other and we said, it's impossible. We were looking at sub 60 and now we've got to start thinking about 52, which is like taking, like taking away eight hours from the previous record. It was impossible. So we went back to the war room. We looked at the blackboards. We started doing all the calculations and it seemed like it's going to be really painful. Um, um, so previous record was 52, th- 52 hours and 30 minutes. And I, I think uh, we could have done it sub 50 if it was not for Paris traffic. This is absolutely crazy. So the, the logistics this year, the 140 kilometers run to begin with to get um, to get to, and where, where do you go off from um, to, for the swim? Uh, from Dover. From Dover, yes, it's the, the shortest part of the crossing. But obviously you need to time it perfectly for the tides. So to be able to do it in that 52 hours, you realize that you've got, you're going to have to cut down the running time significantly to, and then be able to catch the tides correctly to be able to get the swim on time. So how, how did you do the logistics for it? So what, how did it change when you went from 
sub 60 to sub 52? What we were told was it was going to be a 6 a.m. swim start on uh, the next day. And it was for us to choose. So we were given about 36 hours before the swim start and we were given the swim. So everything in, in Ashtuak is reliant on the swim when yeah. the swim starts because it's the tide and when the pilot is free and the pilot decides everything. So pilot sometimes gives 24 to 36 hours of, um, of, uh, of notification to the, to the athlete or to the swimmer. So this, um, we were told by the race director that the swim starts going to be at, at, a, at like 6 a.m. And we were to cal- calculate back when we want to start this, the run. And I said, I'm going to start the run 22 hours before the, the swim start. And the race director was saying, never been done before. You don't have the, the experience. You don't have the, the stamina. Uh, you're not a great swimmer. You're not an open water swimmer. I wouldn't recommend that to you, Mayank. So Edgar said, Edgar is the, uh, is the Edgar Ed is the swim is a race director. And he was shaking his head and saying, I don't recommend it to you, but if you want to do it, it's up to you. Um, and it's going to be a really hot run, run, run because the, it was August bank holiday heat wave. Spoke to Teresa, who is my crew, and she said, well, if you want to do it, we should do it, right? But that means you've got to be really swift on the run. Um, but we did it. So we finished the 140-kilometer run in 16 hours and 35 minutes. And then the question was, how much rest am I going to get? Which for me meant about five hours, some some minutes of rest. It was going to be tough because after 16 and a half hours of running, I was supposed to re- recover, rest, and be prepared for another 15 hours of swimming. Uh, and there was there was a huge difference in the weather because it was... 37, 38 degrees on the run, super hot run. And the water was, was nippy. It was like 19 degrees. Um, for, a, for a typical channel swimmer, 19 degrees is really warm. But for me, who was training in Hong Kong with 27, 28 degrees of, of water temperature, um, 19 degrees was a, was a fairly cold water. So we finished the run. We showed up at the boat uh, the pilot was there, we did the briefing and the race director was shaking his head and saying, bad idea. You're probably going to end up finish DNFing this whole swim halfway through because you got to think about it, Mayank. You still have time. Do you want to move? And he said, no, we're going to go for it. So, so, so and- sorry, let me just get that straight. So you'd, um, you, the, the, how, at what time did you do that, the run in the 140K? 16, 16 hours and 35 minutes. And then you and then you go straight into the swim, or are you able to have like a, and you you timed it? So you were there for the six o'clock um, to go off at six o'clock. Yeah, so I had about five hours uh, break in between the run and the swim start. Uh, just like set up in a tent and just had a had like a crash on the beach before before heading off and what was it the race director because he seems like a pretty negative nancy race director but um normally when people tell you that there's a good chance you're not going to be able to do it it's kind of fuel to the fire and it's almost i i'm sure you take it as encouragement but at the same time when it's a race director and they see many people do it you're like you might have a point um so what was it that made you made think that you were going to dnf no, because he thought that uh, it was it was a really hot run, and I had depleted 
so much. I had layers of salt and I was super, it was a very, very hot run. So I don't think anyone has probably ever had such weather conditions on the run, running from London to Dover to then get in and swim the channel. So his point was that if you are going to attempt a channel swim, you need about 12 hours or at least about eight hours of rest and break before your body recovers and you have the chance to sort of, you know, replenish your body and depleted all the resources. And he was absolutely right because the first three hours of the swim, I was suffering. I finished the run. I didn't eat anything. I didn't want to eat anything. I had no interest. My body had no interest. Even if I ate anything, my body would not absorb it. I was super confident about that. I got up next morning and we had all these protein shakes and we had these milk milkshakes and we had uh, carbs and we had food ready. I didn't touch anything. And I said, I'm going to start eating when I hit the, hit the water. So I entered the water like 14, 15,000 calories negative on my body. And I suffered a lot. The first three hours, I was just so cold in the water. I was just shivering. I couldn't handle it. Every time my, my butler on the boat gave me water, hot water, I was throwing it inside my wetsuit because I was just so cold. And it came down to basically those, those words, those wise words of the race director were so, sort of coming back and saying, I wish I had taken another four hours break because that would have changed everything. I would have had a nice breakfast. I would be more prepared for it. My body, body would warm up. But, um, um, but then the, sh- the sun came out, right? The, 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 uh, it was a beautiful day. It was blue skies. Uh, the sun, sh- sun came up and, uh, and, and some beautiful things happened in the channel. And um, I just think everything fall- fell in place and I warmed up. And then there was no looking back. I just kept swimming. So my decision was to uh, keep swimming until my lips turned purple and my I'm not able to understand or respond to the boat pilot. I'm going to keep swimming until, until then. And I thought I was there, right? So I was doing my own calculations. I was doing two, two into two is what? Nine plus seven is what? Uh, 95 minus 65 is what? And if I was reaching the right answer, I thought I was okay. I could make the right decision. But then every time I popped my head out, um, the boat captain said, you're fine. And I was hoping the boat captain would say, Mayank, you're not able to understand this. We got to get you out because you're not healthy enough. But it never happened. So it was just mental, right? I My mind was playing games. And I'm so glad that... I was able to have one of the best Channel Swimming Federation boat pilots I've, that channels, the CSF has ever, ha, has ever seen, Mike Oram, on the boat. And I had a great butler, my friend, uh, Daniel von der Haaf, and I had a great uh, observer, Rachel. They just kept motivating me, and they never told me uh, I had purple lips. Even if I had, they just kept me going. That is crazy. So you get into... Um... You, you, you cross the channel and obviously you're very much dependent on the, um, on the tides there. So you get it. And, and it, um, was it, sorry, 15 hours or how long was this, did the swim uh, take? 16 hours? I, I was prepared for 15 to 18 hours of swimming, but uh, it, went, it went better than I expected. It was about 12 hours and 40 wow. minutes. Or so. 
Yeah. That, yeah. That's an amazing time for people that are just doing the swim on its own, right? It's, that's crazy. And and so then you have all you have your team there with your I tell your bike's not on the boat with you, right? You already had you had a team on the other side of the channel, like waiting with all your bike and all your equipment there with you. Um and did you get a chance to rest again before you jump on the bike or are you um what what sort of uh transition period you have so our plan was uh teresa was on the run she crewed me on the run my wife and then daniel came on the boat and teresa got some rest when she was in dover so she took the bike on the ferry to calais and uh we we did rather unexpectedly quite well on the swim and teresa uh connected with dan saying after I landed at Cape Grenay. So that was my plan. I wanted to land on Cape Grenay because all the top swimmers land on Cape Grenay and it's just so iconic and it's beautiful. So the pilot was great. He was very, very uh, accommodating and we kept pushing. We got to Cap- Cape Grenay. When we got to Cape Grenay, um, uh, I came back to the boat. I was surprised. It was 12 hours, 48 minutes for the swim. So basically we were in for the the record uh and that was our plan so if we finished uh, the swim anything less than 15 hours we were in for the record so we've got to keep going i came out of on the boat and i looked a completely different person right because i, I was so depleted i was super purple i've got photos these are just just uh, nightmarish photos uh, of me and dan was cooking me nice hot mushroom soup feeding me carbs and so Teresa was right up on Cape Grenay where the, the World War II bunkers are and she, she saw the boat that picked me up. And the, the boat from Cape Grenay to Calais port is about two hours. So the boat picks up the swimmer and, and, and ferries them to the Calais, which is part of the whole, whole time. So I had something to eat and Teresa messaged WhatsApp Dan and Dan, she said, so how's my feeling? And Dan said, doesn't look great, but I'm feeding him and uh, I think he should be fine in about an hour or so. And Teresa said, all right, tell Mayank the bike's ready. We're leaving for Paris. And that was the code word to mean we're not going to take a break in Calais, but we're going to just head off to to Paris. So the boat got me to Calais at just before uh, 10 p.m. And the plan was I get on my TT bike and we go to Paris uh, and we ride all night long uh, on the on the on the country roads and uh, dark country roads where there's nobody, there's no lights. Uh, and I was sleepless for more than about 35, 38 hours. Uh, so it was tough. And you, had, you had some crewing and obviously, because when you're sleep deprived and having to ride and cycle with your head down and then navigators, so you had someone navigating for you and guiding you to, to the Arc Triomphe. Yeah, so uh, we had the car. We had Teresa in the car, who was, uh, of course, leapfrogging. Uh, but I had I had the maps on my computer, and I did make a few wrong turn, wrong turns. I got on got off the highway, got on the wrong highway. We did a few things, but yeah, in principle, I had a lot of support from the race director and Teresa, who were uh, all night long guiding me through the the, the country roads um, before the sun came out. That changed everything. Next morning at six a.m., but from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., eight hours of night riding, sleep-deprived, depleted. Um, yeah, that was hard. But what kept us going was the fact that uh, the awareness that we were now in that record zone. And if we kept pushing, we could actually get close to the record. 
And there must have been times with it. I mean, once you're on the bike, you, it must feel like it's, um, yeah, you, you're in with a great shout because you had that buffer time as well. But I'm sure there are a few dark moments um, on that bike ride. Yeah, yeah. There was there was so many dark moments. There were moments when uh, um, I was I was trying to keep myself awake. I was slapping my face. I was talking to myself. I was I came up with things I should just talk about because that's the only thing that could keep me awake. So I was talking to my kids about the school. I was talking to my supervisor about the things I should do at work, and I was uh, I was I was I was playing a script where I was asking questions to myself and I was responding to those questions. And uh, um, I, I did some, I did some very uh, unbelievable uh, chatting on the bike just to stay awake that night. And uh, the coffee wasn't working. Uh, Red Bull wasn't working. Uh, brushing my teeth wasn't working. Uh, I tried to trick my brain. It, nothing was working. So it was r- literally uh, Every thirty minutes, I had to come up with something new to keep keep myself awake because I was I was really falling off to sleep on the bike, and I knew it. If I fell off to sleep on the bike, that would be end of this whole it's game over. Yeah, yeah. The, the challenge with it is because you're on a TT bike, right? You're in the same position, pushing the same pace, keeping the same um, the, the relatively the same speed the whole way, and it just can. When you sleep to arrive, you just can so easily nod off. It's not like you're you're doing hills constantly, or you're um yeah, or you're like off road where you just need to have your wits about you so much more. Um, yeah, I can imagine how hard that must have been after thirty six hours no sleep. Yeah, and that's a good point, Scott. You just raised is uh, it probably would have been better if if I had taken a road bike because it would probably just have offered a lot more comfort. Um, riding the bike, just taking a TT bike after having had uh, spent 12 and a half hours, almost 13 hours swimming. Uh, the position wasn't the right thing to do for another 13, 14 hours. So I tried to get in that position. It was all, every time it was hurting, right, in the TT position. So I rode a lot on the drop bars. And that was a bad idea because drop bars, country roads. So I had when I got to Paris, I had like blood all over my palms because it was just not the right thing. I didn't have the proper taping on the bike. I had never thought it through that I would need um, like proper uh, protection and proper insulation from the from the impact, right? And I wasn't using the 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 the, the TT position anymore. I was just the aero position anymore. I was just using the drop bars, and I rode it like that, and it hurt a lot. So. I think a road bike would have been a much better idea. <laughs> Mate, that is absolutely crazy. What an unbelievable performance. And that would have been summer 2019. So was it August time, did you say? Yes, end of August. And you mentioned like the race director was was there, but it wasn't, was it, were the other people taking on the challenge at exactly the same time? No, that's the, that's how it works at Arch2Arc is, uh, between the swim times, which start in June and probably end in October or September, um, every challenger is given about 10 days of window when they can attempt this, unless a specific athlete has had bad weather because they could not swim the channel. And they do have a pilot that is willing to swim, take them, you know, pilot them through the swim. 
in which case there can be two or three athletes doing it at the same time. But typically it's just one athlete every 10 days. That's, um, that's absolutely crazy. And so obviously coming off the back of that, as with any challenge, the, pretty much the first thing that goes through your mind is, is what next? One of the big reasons we wanted to get you on was to talk about Everest, Everest Man. And so, so when did um, the concept and the idea for that come, uh, come to mind? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, with all these races cancelled, right? Um, I, I was supposed to do a Swiss Man in June and uh, a few Ironman races um, like Ironman Taiwan um, in April or March and everything was getting cancelled, right? Because of COVID-19. And I, I, had, I had a lot of training in me and I was starting to get a bit concerned about what am I going to do with all this training? So I decided to talk to my coach. I have, a, I have an online coach. Uh, he's based in Canada, Nigel Gray. So I spoke to him and I, got, I learned about Everesting on the bike. So I, I asked him if I, were, if I was okay to go for an Everesting on the bike and I could just do it right next to my, my home where I stay because we've got lots of hills in Clearwater Bay in, in Hong Kong, in Saikung area. And he said, yeah, sure, you should, you should do it. So I attempted it. And I had to stop it at 7,000 meters because uh, it was crazy amount of rain and just unending winds and it didn't make it any more safe to be on the bike. So I finished those 7,000 meters of climbing and about uh, probably about 15 hours of riding. And uh, next day I felt great. I went for a long run. I went in the afternoon, I went for a nice long swim and it didn't feel like I had put in any effort, right? So. Nigel messaged me back saying, uh, I'm really sad to hear about your uh, DNF on the Everest thing, but let me know when you want to do it again, right? So I spoke to a few friends and they said, yeah, you should do it. You should absolutely do it because you don't, you don't look like in the end that you had put in any effort. So I said, well, I felt great after, after that bike ride, after 165 kilometers on the same hill, 7,000 meters of elevation. So why not think of a swim and a run after that? So I talked to Everesting CC, uh, Andy, Andy Van, Andy Van Berg, and uh, who's, who's based in Australia, who runs the Everesting CC website. And I said, hey, Andy, has anyone ever done a bike ride followed by a run? And he says, no, nobody's ever done it. And I said, so I want to do it. And I want to add a swim. And Andy sent to me saying, oh, this is crazy because nobody's ever done a bike in a run consecutively. And you want to throw in, he had like, like inverted commas, right? And so you, 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 you're going to throw in a swim, a 9K swim before that. This is simply awesome, beautiful. It's so, 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 so good, right? And I said, yeah, I have a good feeling about it. So it's, it seemed like nobody had done it. And I feel... That's, that's really our job here, right, as, as, uh, as endurance athletes, because this is what, this is what drives us. Uh, we, we are driven with adventure and exploration. We are driven with uh, experiencing the depths of pain and, and depths of happiness when we, when we dive into that unknown. Uh, and we look forward to diving into that unknown. So... It seemed like it was a perfect combination of diving into the unknown. Nobody had ever done it. Nobody had ever experienced that pain. Nobody had ever 
documented that uh, that experience of what it would feel like to the swim was 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 no brainer, right? It's it's a nine k swim; it doesn't matter. But what would it feel like to do uh, climbing the Mount Everest two times in in two days? And how does it feel uh, mentally and physically? So that really got me keen and interested. So I spoke to my coach and he said, I don't think you're ready for it. Uh, this is not something you've trained for. And I said, well, we're never ready for anything. So we just got to go for it, Nigel. And he knows I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of an out-of-the-box guy. And uh, if he told me no, I'm going to go for it, right? So he said, all right, let's go for it. But you got to make sure you sleep in between. You've got to make sure we have to keep you in the power zones. And um, it, was, it was great because uh, I'd realized that I was going to try something which, uh, which was going to give a new area of exploration. And, and that's the interesting thing, right? Because there's, there's rules around an Everesting in that on a bike, um, you, have to, you have to do a route which is either up and straight back down, or if it, it can loop around a top, but it's, like a, it, it's up and down and, and you count the total accumulative elevation to the, to the point of um, Everest, you're not able to sleep during the challenge. Um, and, um, and then on foot, you're able to actually take, uh, you're able to come down by non-human means, I say non-human means, non-human powered means. Um, so for example, there's, a, there's one that they do in, in, um, in the US where you get a cable cart back down. So you go up and you get a cable cart back down. And they're the kind of, there are rules on the Everesting CC site, but there are no rules about doing an Everesting like 9K swim, then an Everesting on foot, and then, uh, then an Everesting on bike and Everesting on foot. So how did you sort of like come up with the... Um, with your own parameters and rules around it. No, I stuck. I stuck by the Everesting rules. So, the the swim was yeah. You just swim nine k, right? And, and I swam nine k. I had a fr- I had a buddy of mine. He swam with me, and we spent a lot of time in the water, taking photos in open water. We did some photos. We took took it easy. We were joined by a few friends who did some short swims. Uh, I did a loop, came out of the you water. You say, oh, you just swim 9K, right? But I think for most people, that's like, <laughs> that's like how many laps to the 50-meter pool? Um, yeah. I actually can't do the maths in my head. <laughs> but that's a lot. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, but, and you go but, straight from the swim into the bike ride. There's no break or no extended break in between or no sleep in between. No, we, we, we had, like, I came out of the swim and... Uh, Teresa was there again to help me on the on the transition. So we, we had about twenty minutes transition. I had a nice meal, which was about seven p.m., and we got on on the bike. And by about seven fifteen, a few friends of mine joined in because they wanted to do. Somebody wanted to ride the height of Mont Blanc. Somebody wanted to ride the height of uh, you know other hills that they had chosen. Somebody wanted to ride a few hours. So I got a lot of support from my friends and family uh, who came in, but what we ensured was that we followed the Everesting rules. We made sure we had the same hill uh, on the, on the bike. Um, we did, we didn't sleep. I didn't sleep on the bike. My plan was to immediately start the run right after the bike, but I underestimated the bike. So after finishing the bike, I was so devastated. Um, I, I needed some rest. I got some rest in that started the run. We didn't sleep on the run. I tried, I came back. 
uh, somewhere after like uh, 6,000 meters. Um, and I told my wife, I need to nap for five minutes. And she, t- she, was, she, was, she went berserk, right? She said, you're the first one who's doing it. You can't break the rules. And I said, five minutes, give me five minutes, please. I lie down in the, in the, in the living room of our house and I put a, put a cushion right behind my head and I said, give me five minutes. And she slapped in my face and she said, you can't do this. If, <laughs> if, if you do this, you better DNF because you got to stop it here. But if you want to set this standard, you're the first one who's doing it, you got to do it right. And luckily my friends came in then and I, 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 I was, uh, I, I hated the whole thing, but there was a huge amount of emotional and moral support coming around from my, from my wife and my friends who wanted me to finish this, who wanted me to do this. So I had just amazing. And this is the reason why we chose the area that we chose uh, is because it was just so easy for everybody to to be part of it, right? And to come in. It was a weak link because my home was part of the course, uh, which is a positive because I can shower, I can use the toilets, we can have fresh food. Logistics were a big thing, but that was also a weakling because I was passing my home every time. Yeah. And I knew there's a bed there. I knew uh, there's family there. I knew my two boys are waiting for me. Uh, and they were they were amazing too, right? They were they were helping me out. But I had to balance between the the emotions of of the, what I could what I could just just end it, end the whole whole journey, the whole pain, and just go back and just end it there or keep going. Uh, but I had, I had amazing support and nobody let me give up. So we just kept going. I've, um, I've done an Everest on a bike before and I've done an, um, uh, an Everest on foot. And I like, I reached out to, um, to Andy down in, uh, in Melbourne. And uh, I think at the time, I, I think there was only, I, think, I don't know when I was the first, but there was one other pe- person that had done a um, both a bike and on foot that had been registered on the everything cc website having done both i wouldn't even like contemplate at the time doing them back to back let alone as he said like in inverted commas throwing in a swim as well um what what were the splits you ended up doing for uh, for each one so the swim was about three hours something three hours 20 minutes uh, the bike was about 21 hours, 265 kilometers, and the run was about uh, 31 hours, 122 kilometers. Um, so I did, I did talk to my friends, right, and, and my wife saying, you know, in the run, I can be transported down. So would you guys please transport me down and we can actually do it much quicker because... And everybody said, yeah, yeah, that's awesome, right? We'll transport you down and we'll take shifts. So my wife said, no problem, I'll transport you down. So first lap, second lap, third lap, fourth lap, fifth lap, sixth lap, nobody was transporting me down. I said, what's going on, right? I'm running the whole thing down. And uh, I came back after the seventh lap and I asked them, so why aren't you guys transporting me down? There's supposed to be a car up there to bring me down. And they looked at me and said, nah, we want you to do it the hard way you've got to run the whole thing down isn't it feeling good i said no it's not feeling good so yeah i ran the whole thing down i ran the whole thing up um and that's why we ended up spending 31 hours doing the whole thing i and, and you know 
like I think it should be you have to run both up and down um obviously when you're doing it on a bike you get the downs off and, and they're free but, uh, but and running is obviously still tough going down um but I think to do it properly, you need to do the full thing on by human by human power. So yeah, hat tip to you for or, or to your support crew for like not giving you uh, any easy part of it or easy option. Um, just like just incredible. So you and and but you, you were able to have a few hours. You did have a few hours kit in between the um the bike and the uh, and the run leg. Did you like have a full night's sleep or how? Um, because I think you've sort of set the stall out on on this now. So it's sort of like you've made the rules and uh, and that's what. Um, so what level of um uh, break are people uh, in theory able to do between the uh, the bike and uh, the bike and run? I think it's it's really up to everybody. So my whole whole uh, finish time from the swim start to the run run finish is seventy one hours. Um, moving time is about fifty five hours something. So uh, I did break in between. I managed managed to to sleep for for like four hours. Um, I think uh, it's really up to anyone uh, where the where the clock starts and how the clock finishes. It's it's fair to say the clock should start at the swim start and the clock should end stop at the the, the run end um, yeah. and it's really up to how how people are feeling where they're doing it it depends on the heat and the humidity and, and the weather conditions um, so I think the most important thing is to be safe and to, to feel good to enjoy it and it just shouldn't end up in you know ending up in in the in the first aid tent uh, it, it has to be a good experience and that's why we do it so Pushing the limits is a great idea, but one has to know that they can push the limits, uh, and that's really important. I think rest is key. Sleep is important. And how did you how did you choose the the routes as well? You mentioned obviously it's close to home. Um, uh, the the bike ride it seems like it would have been quite steep, having only done two hundred and sixty k for the um, for the everything on a bike. So um, yeah, um, what was the gradient on on your uh, on your cycle? So I had a I had an average gradient of about seven percent, but then I had okay. in the end about three hundred fifty meters was about fifteen percent, uh, which is called the horrible hill because it's just so steep. And I added, yeah, I added that because it was going to give me an extra elevation. Uh, and everybody, most of my friends were wondering why am I doing that because every time just going up that hill once is enough. Doing it about eighty three times is not a great idea. So why would anybody want to do it? But if I didn't do that and I did the other easier gradient, I would have to do it about 112 times, which just going beyond 100 felt too far. So I said, let's add in this extra hill. And we kept going on just doing the reps. Most important Is it the same hill uh, you did your your Everesting on the bike before where you got to 7,000 meters? Was it the same same route? Same route, same route in... uh, it's it's a it's it's a tough one in the end the last 300 meters is pretty tough it's just just straight up but it it gives a very nice 30 meters elevation gain and it's great but then the 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 main idea behind staying on this course was uh, um, down at the start of the hill there was a nice parking i could park my car i could have all the logistics uh, organized over there there was a nice toilet um, I could brush my teeth, I could wash my face, uh, I could use the loose. 
my friends, if they wanted to come and join, they could park their cars, um, they could join in. Um, so just the logistics around uh, making it easy for everybody, including myself, to to get started. Then going up the hill, uh, and it was an easy turnaround point. There was not much traffic. It was not very busy, uh, although it did get busy the next day because it was a weekend. Um, but then there was a noodle shop, a convenience store, with, and a noodle shop which served coffee, Hong Kong-style milk tea, uh, sandwiches, Bukhari, Gatorade, um, all the stuff from about 11 a.m. to about 7 p.m. So that was an important part for me to consider because I would at some point in time want to have a change. My friends were coming to support me. We want to sit down and have a cup of coffee, have some milk tea, have some refreshments. Uh, I stopped there, which is a great idea. I stopped there for noodles three times because I wanted to have breakfast, lunch, dinner. I had so. Um, these, these, these factors, including the hill, of course, but these factors were key for me, which would allow uh, the community to join, my friends to join, but also in terms of convenience, because if we are doing something which is going in, into 50, 60, 70 hours, logistics is so important, right? And, uh, food, uh, resources, uh, replenishing, refilling water bottles. So Teresa would drive down and she would open my car and refill the water in, into the bottles. So all that mattered. If there was no parking, it'll be really hard to do that. So I think the, how we planned the, the course was, was really good. And then the course that you chose on for the, um, for the footpath um, on foot, did you choose trail or was it road? What was the route? It was mixed. So it was, the first 100 meters of elevation, uh, the, the, the total elevation gain on this 2.4 kilometer uh, track was about 347 meters. Um, and the first 110 meters of elevation gain, which is about 700, uh, about a kilometer, was, uh, was purely uh, tarmac. Um, and after that, it entered the trail until it went right up to the high junk peak, which is like a 47, 48% elevation gain. It just goes straight up. Um, and uh, that was all trail and uh, rocks. Um, uh, my coach said I shouldn't do that because after doing it for about 10 times, it would really hurt coming down. He was absolutely right. Uh, but, you know, because he said it's going to be hard. So I thought I should do it. So I, I I decided to do that extra extra bit because it was going to get it was going to get me the the elevation gain that I really needed. Um, so that was all trail and rock and it's it's straight up. It's forty seven forty eight percent incline. And so eighty four uh, laps on the bike. How many did you have to smash out on foot? Uh, Twenty six. 26 wow wow that's absolutely incredible and what what kind of um what gear were you using obviously you weren't using the tt bike for the uh on this one for the uh, <laughs> for, uh for the everything but um but yeah what what trail runners were you using what was what was your overall for the um for, for the challenge yeah so for the bike i had two bikes ready i had a i was riding a factor o2 with a 28 uh chain ring um, and I also had an AX lightness with a 33, just in case it got really hard. 
Um, yeah. I never used the, the light AX lightness with a 33 because I think a 28 was perfect for the, the incline I was working on the bike. I, 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 I like cyclists in the crowd. That's like the, um, the chain ring on the back, the larger um, it means it's, um, you uh, like, is it like essentially like a, a lower gear where you can, um, you can just spin for easier as you go up the hills. That's right. And, um, I, in terms of nutrition on the bike, I just try to stay as natural. I was eating sandwiches and, and potato chips and, 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 and rice balls and just trying to keep it as natural. I was, I didn't touch the uh, gels or anything from like high power sugar nutrition until the last 10 laps. So that's the last 10 laps is where I started to lose it a bit because I knew I was so close, but I was still so far because 10 laps meant another three hours and I didn't, I didn't really have it in me. A bit of motivation from my, from good friends and uh, some high sugar kept me going. And then on the run, I kept it absolutely natural. So it was breakfast time and oatmeal, sandwiches, um, lunchtime meant having a noodle, having dal and rice, uh, dinner meant having a proper dinner like pastas, um, um, vegetables. So just keeping it, just making the brain think everything's under control. Um, for the first 10 laps on the run, I used normal trainers. I did not use uh, trail running shoes. I used uh, Nike Flyknit, which was really light, uh, just keep me going. Uh, but then after that, it started to pour heavily. It was bad weather. There was a lot of uh, rain and flow. So I got into Hoka trail runners and I used them for that. I did need later in the night, it was bad weather, really bad weather, heavy winds, cold spell. So I did uh, carry a jacket. I had um, um, a water vest on me. I had water boobies. So I, was, uh, I had some water, Pocari, just Pocari, plain water. I had a jet at the back, which I never used. And I tried to stay with basically fruits, watermelon, uh, mango, uh, apples, and just eating as natural as I can. Um, that kept me going, Scott. So, so you weren't, uh, apart from Bacara, you weren't using any other sort of carbohydrate drink or anything or any powder or it was just mainly, uh, yeah, your, it's real food sounds like it was the order of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what I experienced also at arch to arc Even at arch to arc we stuck with just normal food. It was rice and dal. It was, uh, you know, the Indian sabjis with uh, cauliflower and potatoes and uh, eating a, a boiled egg or two boiled eggs or three boiled eggs. That just, that's what the body needs really to, to keep us going, especially for the long races. I think if I was doing an Ironman, I'll, I'll definitely be popping, popping a lot of gels uh, yeah. and lots of Gatorade and Pukari because I need that sort of rush but for these long distance, uh, I don't think the body can handle it. So natural food really works very well for me. Absolutely incredible, Mike. Like I'm just, um, I'm just blown away. Um, and having, yeah, as I say, having done it, but in Singapore, both on foot and on bike, um, I just know I, I can empathize with just how big that challenge is. Um, and, and it's huge, mate. And, and there's a reason why the, no one's done it before, because there's not too many people in the world that are that mental, <laughs> um, um, or that courageous, should I say. Um, 
uh, but it's definitely piqued my interest. Uh, I just wish I could swim. You might have to teach me. Um, but f- phenomenal effort. What was the feeling after after actually like completing it close to home? Did you have quite a few of your support crew there for the uh, for the last lap of the uh, of the run? Oh yeah, I had I had amazing support. I had so on the bike I was just never alone, right? I just had my the cycling club guys coming in every hour, two hours, three hours. Some of them stayed six hours, and but it was just 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 it was part of the the camaraderie that somebody's got to be with the guy who's trying to do an everesting on the bike because we can't let him do it alone. We've got to be with him. We've got to support him. Uh, it's a community then, event. It's so much about community and having people come along and join in and, and get involved and feel part of it. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I felt great about it as well because I was happy. It was close to home and it was very close to all my friends live. So the, the, the cycling community lives and they could come in and get out like within five or 10 minutes. It could, somebody was, we have a WhatsApp group and somebody was like, my uncle, my could could do with some company now and somebody would say all right you know i'm going to go and uh, join him for the next couple of hours so it was very good uh on the run was just uh just amazing because i had friends who had had a big bike crash uh this the previous day and he wanted to be with me so he was like just just scraped all over the body right and he he just said, I'm going to do three laps with you, Mayank. And he, he came and walked up all the way and down three laps with me. And then I had other friends coming in uh, saying, uh, we'll do a few laps with you. Uh, I had uh, friends, friends joining in because they heard on the, on, on the community uh, Facebook page that somebody's trying to do this. So people were joining in. There were people with posters in the village, with cowbells and uh, encouraging me to go. Uh, and then in the, suddenly at 2 a.m. In, in the middle of the night, a friend of mine would show up uh, saying, yeah, I'm going to do the next six laps with you. So that was, I think, the most uh, beautiful and amazing experience I've had in terms of uh, the emotion, emotional connect with the event. That's what I remember the most. I don't remember the pain. I don't remember the... Uh, the repetitions, but what I most remember is uh, the friends who came in uh, and supported me just because they thought they needed me, they wanted me to finish it. Uh, and I think that was, uh, that's, that's very memorable for me. Right, that leads quite nicely into the kind of closing questions that I wanted to, um, wanted to ask of you. And actually the first one, was like what makes you emotional and just as you're saying that like I'm thinking about the times that I did it and had people turn up unexpected in the middle of the night selflessly to stomp out a few hours in the witching hour before um before dusk um uh, but yeah I mean would you say that was like one of the that something that makes you really emotional yeah I think I think so I think that's the that's that's what counts. Uh, it's not about personal victories. Um, it's about uh, it's about as a group. Um, everybody felt that they were victorious uh, just by me finishing something like this. It wasn't it, it it wasn't about me in the end. It was about us, and that's what I would remember always uh, from this experiences. Um, we all did it together and in the end I couldn't help but 
tell everybody that uh, it was us that finished it because everyone added up to that. I was, I think I was just the, the hardware. They, these guys were the software that, that kept me going. Um, and if they weren't so there, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. It's it is a, it's a team sport. It's a solo challenge, but it's a it, it's a team sport. You cannot it, uh, it could not be done uh, on your own. So massive props to your support crew. Um, and you you talked about um, David Gettings being like a, a major inspiration for you. Was he actually there? Did he do any of the laps with you as well? Was he uh, was he supporting? You? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there and. Uh... He was there, his dog was there, and these guys, while I was on the bike, he was running, and when I was on the run, he was uh, biking next to me, so he was there, and he joined me for a few laps on the run, and uh, tried to tell me jokes that lasted for tens of minutes, because uh, he just needed me to stay busy listening to something, so... Yeah, he was there and uh, he was there in the beginning, he was there in the end and uh, he was there at the finish line. So um, absolutely. And I think he was uh, celebrating the success probably more than I was. Have there been any other big inspirations for you? It sounds like he had meeting him and seeing him after completing the um, seven marathons in, uh, in seven continents was, uh, was a pretty seminal moment for you. But are there any other books or... Um, or people that you draw inspiration from? Well, I, I live I live in a beautiful area, and it's full of amazing, amazing, inspiring athletes and friends who are great achievers in their personal lives and professional lives. But one uh, one book that really draw drew my attention was uh, Lynn Cox's uh, book on swimming to Antarctica. Um, she's uh, I don't know if. If you should you should read it. Um, people should read it. It's Lynn Cox, L-Y-N-N-E-C-O-X. She's uh, she's basically an extreme uh, um, ultra swimmer. She's from the Bering Strait. She was uh, named, recognized by, uh, I think it was Gorbachev, and as well because bringing in, during the Cold War, she, she swam the Diomedes uh, and the Bering Strait from Alaska into Russia. Uh, it took her years to get that uh, approval. She swam. She's done some amazing swims. And I've read that book repeatedly because it's it's a lot about simple people. It's a lot about um, ordinary people achieving amazing, amazing goals, amazing uh, things in endurance just because of the mindset. Um, Lynn Cox is great. Um, Scott Jurek's book on Born to Run is great in terms of inspiration. I recommend these two books for to everybody who wants to do anything. It doesn't matter whether it's in sports or in professional life because it represents a great sense of uh, self-belief. Um, these, the, yeah, these, these are really my heroes. Yeah, that's amazing. And just as, um, as closing remarks then, Mike, uh, what would your advice be to people that are... Because I, I, I look back at it like I like it thinking that it's really only been two years that you've been on this like crazy endurance journey and it was one person that inspired you to to get on it and, and before that point were you um i mean you're, you're a really fit guy obviously now but before that were you like generally in shape as well or have you been through like a personal transformation during that during those two years or did you have the base and meet automatically to be able to to take on these challenges 
Now, I, I'll say I used to be fit before I went to university and then law school changed everything and uh, the focus was on studies. But until I started doing the, the events the last few years, um, before that I was pretty unfit. I was, I was, uh, I was very much indulgent in uh, dinners and food and wine and I was smoking a lot when I was in, living in China. And uh, meeting these great people uh, around me made me think that, uh, yeah, there's more to life than just uh, whining and dining and going out uh, clubbing. So uh, that changed a lot for me. Um, but I think coming back to your question on uh, recommendation to anybody who wants to do an endurance, I think a lot of people, it's, it's a big thing right now, right? A lot of people want to do endurance and everybody's thinking, uh, uh, 40 kilometers, uh, a marathon, people are talking 50 kilometers, people are talking ultras. Um, and I see a lot of people in these events and they're suffering. They, they really suffer. And at some point in time, uh, I look at them and I wonder why they're doing it. And I think what we need to remember is uh, the purpose. It's really important to have a purpose behind any of these events because if you're going to push our body and our mind to that that level, uh, it's really important to have a purpose. And this was uh, reminded to me by a good friend of mine on the bike ride when I was starting to lose it in the, the last 10 laps. And I said, I, I told him I'm losing it now. And he said, why do you do it? Why are you doing it? What's the reason? And he suddenly reminded me that I wanted to be the first person to, to do it. And I wanted to be the first person to document the pain and the journey and the experience because I I just think it's beautiful to, to be part of this whole exploration. And he sort of reminded me to, to think about the purpose. So anybody who is doing this, uh, we should have a purpose behind it. And uh, if we can keep the purpose at the back of our mind, anytime we are attempting it, I think uh, it'll always be beautiful. If you forget the purpose, uh, and, or it's purposeless. Uh, it's going to be so painful. We want to give up, give it up. Yeah, well, I think that you've definitely paid it forward from David inspiring you, and you're no doubt going to inspire a, a whole load of other people to to take on challenges that they think may be beyond them. Um, incredible story. I mean, I I wasn't. Um, prepared to go into uh, the sheer scale of the, the arch to arc enduro man challenge, but um, just phenomenal. Um, um, what's, uh, what's next for you then? I know that we're, we're still in the midst of the pandemic and the race seasons, the Ironmans, the Swiss man that you'd originally signed up for doesn't look um, like there's going to, yeah, it, we can't, it's hard to plan. So um I see, I see adventure racing in your future. Have you ever thought of doing expedition length adventure racing? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's going to be, uh, yeah, I love to do that. I've, I'm now starting to work on a, on a race in Hong Kong, which is Hong Kong 360. So it's a swim around Hong Kong Island. Um, and I've got the dates in October for that, which is a 43 kilometer swim, but trying to, trying to build on that and add a long bike and finish it off with an ultra run and uh, do everything in Hong Kong uh, in October. So uh, we have to get the permissions from uh, Marine Department in Hong Kong to, to, to do the swim. 
uh, which will be like a 12, 14 hour swim. And then we do the rest. So uh, I think that'll be the start of a beautiful adventure. And then next year I have a few more plans, Scott. I'm going to keep you posted once everything falls in place. Hey, I, I would love to, uh, I'd love to chat more about, uh, about those and, uh, and maybe, yeah, if you want to, I love the planning these sort of challenges as well. So if you want to, yeah, I'd love to throw in some crazy ideas for you to, uh, to expand that as well. But mate, it's been, uh, it's been just a delight chatting with you. Um, keep it up, keep doing crazy stuff, keep inspiring, um, inspiring others. Um, I've got to give for like a tip as well to Teresa your amazing wife like um, for slapping you on that on that run of um, uh, the part of your Everest man challenge like what an absolute trooper and, and also you know, she supports you in all the races as well we can't do it without the support of our loved ones around us so um, excellent stuff mate so, so thank you so much for joining the podcast um, great story and, uh, and yeah we'll definitely um, have you on again soon to hear about the, uh, the Hong Kong 360 and other crazy challenges you have in mind thanks scott thank you very much yeah it's really nice chatting with you and uh yeah looking forward to meeting you at some point in time face to face absolutely i i will hope to be able to support one of these crazy challenges in future but uh good stuff thanks Mayan. take care thanks like the truthful story if they ever ask Hey, Mr. Rick Stockfish. Hello, sir. Evening, Scott. How are you doing? Great chat with my ank. What um, I was just thinking right then, we've had some unbelievable people on our podcast, like just some of the most impressive um, endurance athletes that have uh, lived up the, the moniker of um, ordinary people achieving extraordinary feats. And I just found myself in a in kind of shock just listening to his story um even like from like going from when he's growing up right well i think that's it like i mean he's he's i mean maybe the best example yeah just like really flying under the radar as well just these these amazing achievements but you know not making uh not making a big fuss about it he's not like he's getting his brand out there it's just i mean even that most recent the everest man challenge you know you you barely would have known it was going on it's just uh yeah really humble really really inspiring yeah well uh, he's he's gone under the radar because he's because he's only been doing it for two years i mean that's just the amazing thing that it's um um the the nucleus of it speaking with um with david getting the guy that's done the uh, the seven marathons and seven continents and uh and getting inspiration from him and then and then going and doing enduro man which i hadn't actually like i didn't know too much about um the the arch to arc um or the arc to arch race from london to paris but um my god what an what a, what a tough tough challenge that is then to actually get the the world record uh, and to beat the world record which has only just been set a couple of months before at 52 hours and then yeah. and then to shave another two hours off it is just uh, you, you you don't really expect anyone you you expect the, those sort of world records to be for world-class athletes and I'm not saying he's not but I mean he's only really been training in the last properly in the last couple of years and it just just goes to show what any one of us can um can achieve if we really uh, if we really want to think about resetting the bar of what's possible right you know any, any breakthrough suddenly lots of other people can do it and yeah like you said he went in i think he said his aim was was to break 60 found out fairly late in the game that the record was now 52 hours 
52 and a half, something like that. You know, you would think that, and then that was a set by a fairly accomplished triathlete, I think he said. But to um, to go in there and beat even that new record by a couple of hours is, is amazing. Yeah, and, and what a support crew. Like, it's, um, I think there's been a kind of, quite a few of the people we've got on have just got like amazingly supportive um supportive wives and and partners and uh, and husbands and um and yeah his wife Teresa just sounds like an absolute um legend like going into the Everest Everest man like that's just such a tough challenge it's just such a tough challenge I mean obviously he the um Enduro man is uh, uh, without a doubt like um like one of the top challenges out there but um the repetitiveness and the uh, just the extremeness of doing like a, an Everesting both on on foot and on bike back to back, and just I said just like throwing in a swim a nine k swim there as well. Um, well I was going to ask you like of the two because you've done one on on foot and one on bike, which of the two was was one you know monstrably just harder than the other? I suppose it, it depends what you are more inclined to. Um, so I think for someone that is like a proper trail runner, getting on it on the bike, like the bike's easier. Like, let's get it straight. Like, go, yeah. cause you get, you get the downhills off and right. in theory you're able to do it on foot and get the downhills off, which I'm glad that he didn't like he did it with my eyes or be properly, but being on, on your foot out on foot and it, it's going to take longer. I mean, um, I, th- I forget his exact uh, his exact splits, but it was um, yeah. It, it takes a lot longer on on foot, and I suppose the the challenges on bike are things like uh, being a good bike handler. If you're not like a really really good on a on a bike, then obviously it's not going to be easy. But but just being able to go do the downhills at a decent pace and being able to stay awake because it's probably easier to fall asleep on a bike than it is. Uh, um, than it is like running, or it certainly is going to hurt a lot more if you do uh, if you do fall asleep. Um, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, I thought it's, it's impressive that he did it in the, the the kind of official triathlon order as well, because my guess would have been, I mean, even just having seen you towards the end of your your everything on foot, that if you had a choice, you'd rather get the, the the run out of the way and then and then have the bike rather than the other way around. But you know, to do to do <laughs> swim and then bike and still have still have the run to come is is uh, incredible. Yeah, for sure. Like I, if you remember when um, when I did it on the bike a few years back, we went out the following weekend to run the Cordillera Mountain yeah, yeah. and I hadn't I hadn't run in like a month because I'd have been only or six weeks. I'd pure all my training had been on a bike, and yeah, like smashed the uphills in the first half of it. We did the fifty right, yes, yeah, so the first twenty five, and then the I, the the second twenty five no, no, day, no, I was. Just, I was crippled. Yeah, I was pretty much I had to like crawl home for the last twenty five k. So I mean, the only way to do it is if you would, if is if you train like a triathlete and you're doing all of the disciplines. It's the only way that you could accomplish it. And and so it's the same challenge for anyone doing Ironman is being able to to fit in the training for this stuff and to be able to maintain your fitness in all disciplines is the thing that makes it so hard being able to um find the time to fit that in i mean um my a lawyer he's got a nine-year-old a five-year-old and um and i mean just uh, and is obviously purely dedicated to his um to his endurance sports as well and um and i need to look into his coach nigel gray as he said he's based in canada but um he's, he must have a pretty good coach to help him um help him fit all that in um, but yeah, like I love sharing the story. Can't wait to um, 
I'll come for people to hear it and just get inspired by it. A little bit like he was inspired by David Getting. I was just, uh, I was just listening and thinking, this is like, this is like paying it forward. But other people are going to, um, are going to, are going to gain inspiration from this and uh, and think up their own challenges. And yeah, he's talking about sorting another one out from swimming the circumference of uh, of Hong Kong Island and and tagging on some uh, some extreme stuff to that. So I think that. Uh, it's a good a, timing because they've, they've got the there's that everesting challenge that they're setting up on i think up lantau peak right um and that might be uh might be something that gets more people out to go and do that yeah well well martin martin kai who was the guy that set up the everest man site and then um set up the facebook page and everything and was obviously in touch with andy down in melbourne about the about setting up he's said he's going to like you said obviously said he's going to like look to do other races around it but um i think mine did a good guy uh, did a good job of like getting the awareness out there and um and i reckon like he's gonna yeah he's gonna be on a lot of people's radars now as um as like a, as a as a crazy athlete it's it's kind of comes back to what we were talking about last time about just people doing challenges during quarantine and, and sort of exploring their own backyards a bit more and uh there's nothing quite like that for I think quite like an Everesting challenge for really getting to know a stretch of road uh, on your own doorstep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, uh, he a bit like the, um, the quarantine backyard that Will did, doing it from his front room. It has its pros and cons. You've got all the luxuries, but then you've got all the luxuries, which is a, yeah. an opportunity just to go fuck me somehow. Um, this uh this this whole quarantine and um it keeps keeps going on and uh we've still got still under lockdown races are still um they're still not announced UTMB but it's obviously not going to be long before they announce that and um yeah it's been a it's been a it's been a tough uh, tough few months for everyone so these kind of stories give uh, give everyone a bit of bit of hope and uh, and motivation absolutely yeah i think uh, i think people are going to really enjoy it yeah, I just want to like give a bit of a shout out to um to to my old man Colin Pugh who um who passed away in the um at the weekend. He's been through his own endurance challenge over the last couple of years, from having a heart attack to having a stroke to getting pneumonia, being in and out of a hospital, being in a care home, and um and and sadly passed away at the weekend. Absolutely lovely, lovely bloke. Um. I mean, he's he he was definitely not an athlete himself, but um, um, he he like had uh, diabetes from the age of like thirty. If he'd born a hundred years before, he wouldn't have made it to forty. But um, uh, he was kind of like he was always pretty proud of some of the crazy stuff that I used to used to do. And um, and yeah, I think um, yes, yeah, definitely a. Uh, it's been a been a been a sad sad week or so, um, and it, it will continue to be. But um, yeah, I just wanted to give him a a little a little nod. He's a genuinely good bloke, and um, yeah, he's going to be uh, he's going to be missed by a lot of his mates and obviously family and friends and stuff. So felt the need to. No, no doubt, he's uh, he was immensely proud of of what you were doing, um, the podcast, all the challenges, and uh, and no doubt there'll be many more to come. And uh, you know, you keep that keep that flame alive yeah i mean the one other thing is um like because he like had 
diabetes pretty badly. I had really bad feet and he just, he didn't keep his hair. I, I mean, he lived to 79, like an amazing innings considering the, the illnesses that he had. And, um, but it, it's something that inspires me even more just to like maintain fitness. And, uh, you know, when he first had that heart set, I was like, right, I am going to, at least, I'm going to run an ultra when I'm his age. Like when I'm 70, like 78, I'm going to make sure that I'm fit enough to run an ultra when I'm in his age. So, um, and like, it's funny listening to Mayank and talking about um, in the Indian community, like sport is not really, um, outside of cricket is just not really supported and it's not really encouraged. And, um, and yeah, I mean, so many people that are, that, that are affected by coronavirus that, that have like diabetes or like heart disease or things that are caused by lack of exercise and bad diet and um and low immune system and just shows that like doing these kind of endurance sports and and, and keeping yourself healthy is like yeah it's never been uh it's never been more important and also just that seize the day mentality it's been a rough year i mean your dad and everyone on lockdown and nick tinworth before that there's a real lesson in there i think about just doing the doing the things you you can do when you can do them and making the most of it all absolutely absolutely carpe diem um so yeah i'm gonna gonna finish off with um with uh yeah my dad's uh my dad's favorite song you, you'll never walk alone he's also a massive michael ball fan and um and i don't know if you saw like yeah the the um uncle tom or uh the hundred year old that was uh yeah. that was walking in the backyard and raised like it's raised over 30 million dollars like um yeah, made a, made a donation there as well. But it's pretty fitting that they brought this thing out. It was my dad's favourite song. He was an avid Liverpool fan. He was a big Michael Ball fan. And um, and yeah, and he always said that he'd want this song played at his, uh, his funeral. So, um, so yeah, with that, nice one, Rick. We'll, um, we'll catch up in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, nice one, mate. Thinking of you. Cheers, man. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky and sweet to the song of your laugh. When you walk through a storm, Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of the storm There's a golden sky And a sweet silver song Of the dark Walk on through the wind Walk on through the rain Though your dreams be tossed and blown Walk on, walk on With hope in your heart And you 